0: If you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 21, which marks a very important transition here in Paul's, in Peter's letter, and in our study of Christianity 101, living as elect exiles. See, Peter's been writing to a group of fledgling believers who were facing an increasingly hostile culture around them because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. Though God had chosen them, the world was rejecting them. And these new Christians were having a hard time knowing how to respond to all this hostility and hardship and how to live in this world for the glory of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so Peter writes this letter to them to outline for them the basics and essentials of the Christian life. And what we've seen is that the Christian life is essentially a life of worship, of blessing God continually. That's what Peter says back in verse 3, if you recall, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our hardships, we who have been born again by God's grace, mercy, and power should be continually blessing God. Why? Peter has given us four reasons in verses 3 through 12. You see, you recognize it would be hard to remember these things when we're going through trials. And so he reminds us of four reasons for why we ought to bless God continually for our new birth. The first reason, which was given back in verse 3, was because of the source of our new birth. Peter says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Right, We ought to bless and worship God for our new birth because it is something that He accomplished for us entirely on His own by His great mercy and sovereign will. He has caused us to be born again. The second reason why we ought to bless God continually for our new birth is because of the rewards of our new birth. That's at the end of verse 3 and verse 5 where Peter reminds us that because we've been born again by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus, we've been given a living hope. We've been given an incorruptible inheritance. We've been given an unlosable salvation. We are being kept by God's power through faith. What a reward. We ought to bless God for that. The third reason why we ought to bless God continually is because of the experience of our new birth. Given in verses 6 through 9, we who have been born again have not adopted a religion, we've experienced a resurrection. We've been born again and we experience by God's grace the presence of a supernatural faith, hope, love, and joy that rises to the occasion in the midst of trials inexplicably that can only be explained by the life of God within us. And we experience this miraculous everyday salvation on a daily basis. We ought to continually bless God for our new birth because our new birth is a gift that we continually enjoy. And then finally, the fourth reason that Peter gave us of why we ought to bless God continually for our new birth is because of the wonder of our new birth. We saw that last week. What we as believers in Jesus Christ enjoy on a daily basis is a salvation of such great wonder and worth that it dominates throughout the ages the focus of the prophets, the Spirit, the Christ, the apostles, and even the angels in heaven. The angels whose one job is to worship God continually long to look into your salvation because they recognize the grace that is currently at work within you is a cause for everlasting salvation. And we'll see that in the book of Revelation where the saints are praising God continually for the new birth and salvation they've received. A continual source of eternal worship. And so that's why even in the midst of trials we, right now, should bless God continually for our new birth because of the source, the rewards, the experience, and the wonder of our new birth. Well, starting today, everything changes. You see, up until now, everything that we've been studying in this book so far is simply facts, doctrinal truths revealed in God's Word. But these truths about our great salvation are given not simply to fill our brains. They are given to transform our lives, to produce a response. And so if you have the passage open in front of you, you'll notice that it begins in verse 13 with the word therefore. In other words, this is an application of everything that we've been studying up until now that is, in light of this great salvation that God has given us, in light of our new birth and everything that God has, will, and is right now doing for us in Jesus Christ, how ought we to respond? How do we live in this world for the glory of God? How ought we to respond to our salvation? How ought we to respond to God? How ought we to respond to each other? How ought we to respond to ourselves? How ought we to respond to the world around us? How do we put feet to the truth and actually demonstrate our new birth to everyone that we are among how do we actually follow the call in verse 3 to live a life of worship and blessing to god how are we to bless god continually for our new birth well it all begins by responding rightly to god considering our unmerited salvation and our new birth how ought we to respond to god what should a born again you could put this way what should a born again relationship with god look like we're going to begin finding out this morning, verses 13 through 21 of First Peter chapter 1, and i summarize the three born-again responses to God for our salvation given in this passage through these three statements. Be ready, be righteous, and be reverent. Be ready, that's in verse 13. Be righteous in light of the new birth that you've received, verses 14 through 16, and be reverent in light of it as well. Those are the three verbs, the three action words in this paragraph, and they are the three responses we're to have towards God in light of our salvation and our new birth. Be ready, believer born again, by God's mercy and power. Be righteous, believer born again, made righteous by God's power. Be reverent. And we'll just look at the first of those responses this morning Be ready. Be ready. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 19. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us today. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is the word of God who fills us with consuming zeal when his foes forget his words. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the passage in front of us. I thank you for the truth that is in it. I thank you for the call and the challenge and encouragement that it brings. Father, I thank you for the full week that I've had studying this. I pray that you would help me to share what needs to be shared this morning. And I pray that these truths would set a fire in the hearts of your children. To live a life of hope. That is grounded fully on Christ and Christ alone. Give us grace, Father, to demonstrate our new birth. Do the work that needs to be done this morning. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we bless God continually in light of our new birth and the wondrous salvation that he has given to us? How do we respond properly to what God has done, is doing, and will do for us in Jesus? First, we must be ready. We must be ready. That's in verse 13 where Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. That will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, though there are a lot of phrases in that one sentence, the central phrase, the kernel of the sentence is this. Set your hope. Set your hope. That is the main emphasis, the main focus, the main exhortation, because God has given you this glorious new birth and this miraculous everyday salvation And this wondrous grace and glory and honor to be brought to you set your hope. You must secure your hope, believer. This world will seek and strive to make you move your hope away from Christ and onto other things. And you must secure your hope. You say, well, what is hope? Biblically, hope is quite simply a positive and confident expectation about the future. In fact, hope is a lot like faith when you think about it. Faith is believing what God has promised about the past and the present. Hope is believing what God has promised about the future. You can see this close connection between hope and faith in Romans 4.18 where Paul says of Abraham, In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations just as he had been told. So, there we see that hope is believing and it is expecting what God has said about the future. Believers, those who have been born again to a living hope, ought to be exhibiting hope on a day to day basis. They ought to have their hope secured. And Peter tells us that the first response we ought to have towards God for our salvation is we ought to set our hope fully. That is, we ought to fix our hope completely, unreservedly, and totally on the one who saved us. That is where your hope lies in light of our salvation. We owe God that. We owe Him that. Just think about it, believer. God promised you that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I have a question for you, believer. Has God been faithful to that word with you? God promised you that whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Has God been faithful to that word to you? God promises you that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. He promised you that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He promised you that if you confess your sins he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Has he been faithful to that word for you? Is it not true that every word of the Lord proves true? Is it not true that He is a shield to all those who take refuge in Him? Has He not been faithful to every single word that He has ever spoken to you, believer? Is this not so? Well, if He has promised, if He has proven Himself worthy to be trusted by you in what is past then he is worthy to be trusted by you in what's to come. And that's what Peter is driving at. In the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of hardships, what do you immediately start doing? You start fearing the future. And Peter's saying, don't you remember who's in charge of that? Has he not laid up for you so many great and precious promises which he will surely fulfill? Secure your hope. Secure your hope. This is how we set ourselves apart from the unsaved world in which we live. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world where people do not have hope. They are filled with despair, fear, anxiety regarding the future. We must be different. We are born again. In the midst of our trials and hardships, the God who has, been, who has given us this great salvation, who has been faithful to all of, our, all of His promises, is worthy of our hope. And therefore, the best and first way to worship God, I want to live a life that worships God, well, how do you do that? Uh, it's to set your hope and your confidence is completely and unreservedly upon Him and upon the specific promises that He's made to you. Namely, the end of verse 13, we are to set our hope fully, he says, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, we are to secure our hope and our positive expectations about the future fully upon the praise and glory and honor mentioned back in verse 7 that will come to us, that grace that will come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what we are to set our hopes upon, believer. That is where our positive expectations about the future are supposed to rest. It is upon the coming of Jesus Christ. It is not about the coming of a certain politician. It is not about the accomplishments of even believers. It is to be secured fully on the coming of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2. We are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of God our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a believer's hope. Jesus is, and Christ alone. That's what we're to set our hope upon. Brothers and sisters, our hope, our positive disposition in life as believers is not to be grounded on our circumstances, because you will fail in being joyful or hopeful based on (laughs) circumstances. It is not to be grounded on the temporary or fading rewards of this present world systems, which will constantly change, degrade, fall apart. No, our hope is to be fully grounded on the eternal future promises that God has given to us in His Word. As Peter will tell us later in 1 Peter 1 24 through 25, he says, All flesh is like grass and its glory, like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our Lord endures forever. We're to secure our everyday hope and everyday positive outlook on that. On that. Upon that which will last forever, upon God's eternal promises, promised to us in His Word. As Romans fifteen fourteen says, it is through the comfort and encouragement of the Scriptures that we obtain hope. We obtain hope, so we can secure our hope fully and unreservedly upon the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because we can set our hope fully and unreservedly upon the unchanging Word and the promises of a faithful God. He who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. But notice I want you to see that the rewards that will be brought to us at that day are labeled here by Peter as what? As grace. Right? This is powerful. Listen to this, believer. When you first came to Jesus Christ, it was all of God's grace, wasn't it? The beginning of your salvation was a gift from God that you did not earn and could never deserve. That's what 1 Peter chapter 3, or verse 1, Chapter 1, verse 3 states, right? Well, guess what? When Jesus comes and glorifies you and He brings your salvation at last to full perfection, when that day comes and He showers upon you praise and glory and honor in the presence of His Father and the holy angels, when that day comes, it will be all of God's grace just like it was at the very first. This is a reminder for us that every single blessing Not only today, but in that day, will be a gift from God that you did not in any way earn or deserve. And this is important to remember because being prone to pride and self-righteousness as human beings, we have this stunningly persistent notion that in some small ways, we somehow deserve at least a little credit for our salvation, right? That when we first got saved, it must be because of something that we did, right? What we understood, we we believed, right? We were more willing. We were more open. We were more perceptive than others. Yeah, that's why we got saved, right? We mistake the fruit of our salvation for the root and the consequence for the cause. Or as we progress in our salvation, right? We It must, again, because of something that we did or we're doing, right? Well, I'm progressing in my sanctification because I'm reading my Bible more than you. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's what it is. I'm going to church, unlike the rest of you sinners, Right? It's because we're more disciplined, we're more faithful, we're more humble than the rest. (laughs) Yeah, that's why we're progressing in our salvation, right? And then when we're finally saved and are rewarded with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we are tempted to think, as always, that it must be because of something that we've done. These blessings are mine because I've earned them. I was faithful. I obeyed. I earned this by how I lived in my life. Yes, that's why I'm being rewarded. Listen, believer, all of that is a lie. Everything that I've just been saying. What does Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you've been saved, and this is not of your what? Own doing. In fact, all of the things that you did in life that you're tempted to think somehow earns you eternal credit or blessing from God is simply as... Paul says in Philippians 2.13, God working in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Right? It's all of God's grace for the praise of God's glory. Your, et- your entire salvation is a gift of God that you, n- that you will never earn nor deserve. So don't serve God under some, this is, this is the application, don't serve God under some bizarre sense of entitlement, right? under an impression that somehow you deserve something. How warped is that? Believer, you will be no more worthy of eternal glory in that day when Christ is revealed than you were when Christ first saved you. You deserve nothing. You, the, okay, here it comes. The only thing you deserve is hellfire for your rebellion against God. But this is what great mercy is all about. A God of great compassion towards those who don't deserve it. All of this. So what we're experiencing this morning together as a community of faith, right? All of this, this life, this living, this salvation, this new birth, it's all of grace and of grace alone. Don't service God under some bizarre sense of entitlement. Serve God under a profound sense of gratitude, Say with those in Luke 17, verse 10, we're but unworthy servants. We have only done what we ought. This whole salvation from start to finish is a gift of God's undeserved kindness and grace. And so serve God under a profound sense of gratitude. And set your hope, he says next, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at Jesus Christ's return. You say, okay, but how? How? Okay, how, how do I set my hope fully on God's grace that is coming? How do I reorient my life and maintain a positive perspective that is daily lit by Christ's coming and not affected by the circumstances of life? How can I have a secure hope? How can I do that? Well, the answer is found in this verse in the two opening phrases that I purposely overlooked until now, right? Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. You see, in the midst of hardships and difficulties, that is how you secure your hope as a believer. You prepare yourself. You prepare your minds for actions. And you be sober-minded. So first, in order to navigate life with a hope that is fully fixed on the grace that is coming at Christ's return, you must first prepare your minds for action. There is preparation that is done. If you are going to stand the test in trials, you must be preparing for those trials now. You don't wait to when your hope is shook up to secure it. You secure it in advance. When sailors see a storm coming, they don't wait until the tempest hits. They batten down the hatches before, not during. You must prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. Prepare your minds for actions. In the Greek, that's literally, gird up the loins of your mind. Okay, Now that sounds a bit awkward for us. At least it does to me. (laughs) Perhaps, but many of you are familiar with the fact that when this letter was written, in that area of the ancient world, everyone wore long flowing robes down to their ankles or knees with a sash or a belt that was tied around their waist. That's what everybody wore. They all wore dresses, sorry. Well, that's all fine and good, I jest. That's all fine and good when all you've got to do is walk, right? But if you need to get up and go anywhere in a hurry, you just can't take off, off an address at a dead run, so I've been told. All that extra material would get in the way, right? It would all get in the way. And you see this, by the way, when you have these weddings that we have here at Grace Chapel and the ladies come forward and they're wearing these wonderful long flowing robes and they can barely make it up the steps, right? (laughs) They have to gather it all up. Well, back then, if you had to do work or you had to go somewhere fast, you would take that robe and you would tuck it right up into into your belt so that you could actually go somewhere and do something and accomplish something with your life, right? All that extra material had to be taken out of the way. And so what people would do is they would tuck those corners of the robe up into their belt, and that would free up their legs to be able to do quick and sudden action, right? They would gird up their loins. I think the illustration that's best uh, in the Bible is the story of the Exodus and the first Passover, if you remember in Exodus chapter 12, which Peter doubtless had in mind at this moment. In Exodus 12, God had told his people Israel that he was going to lead them out of slavery in Egypt, and they needed to be ready for the sudden departure. They needed to be ready for the sudden redemption that was going to spring upon them in a moment, right? And so God tells them in Exodus 12, verse 11, In this manner you shall eat of it, with your belt fastened, literally with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat the meal in haste. Right. In other words, eat the meal like you are ready to take off at any moment. Put aside all the superfluous clothing so you're ready to leave at any moment. That is exactly what Peter is telling each and every one of us who have been born again. You want to live a life of worship to God? It begins by putting away everything superfluous so that you are ready to take sudden action and leave this world in a moment. You're to live your life ready for your departure. You're, in other words, the Christian life is not looking, is, it's not to be viewed as how do I make a lasting home for myself here. It is how do I get myself ready for the home that's to come. My job as a Christian is not to bring in, okay, I'm giving myself away, bring in a kingdom here and now for which to me and dwell. My job as a believer is to get ready for the kingdom that I'm going to move into and that is one day going to come here to earth. That's how I think as a believer. I'm not making a home for myself here, I'm getting ready to go to my real home. I'm getting rid of it. So that's exactly what Peter is saying here for you and me. We need to be living like we're ready to leave. In our thinking, in our minds, in our priorities, in our focus. This is this is how we live. This is how we live. You need to be putting aside superfluous pursuits. I don't know how else to word this. I pray that the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart right now as I'm teaching this. You need to put away immature interests. You need to pull up your thoughts. And make sure that nothing is keeping you from setting your hope fully on the grace being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You need to be getting yourself ready for a sudden departure. We need to be ready to depart cleanly from the clutter of this life's circumstances at any moment. In light of Christ's return, we need to be casting off our wrong thoughts and our emotions. We need to be devoting ourselves to fully surrendering to Jesus Christ. We need to be, as Colossians 3.2 says, setting our affections, our emotions, our priorities on things above, not on the things of the earth. And we need to make sure that we're ready for a clean departure. We need to be ready to meet the Lord. See, when this exact same language, girding up your loins, was used in the book of Job, Job had an appointment. Job 38, verse 3, Job 40, verse 7. When God comes to self-absorbed Job in a whirlwind, God says to him, dress for action like a man. I'm going to question you and you will make it known to me. In other words, God says to him, get ready to face me, Job. Dress yourself for action. And I think that's also what Peter's saying here. God in all of his undeserved grace and glory is standing ready to return at any moment. You had better get yourself ready to face God. This is how you live a life of worship to God. You you are ready to meet Him. Be ready. And you can only really do that when you're living in submission to God's will, isn't it? If you're not living in submission to God's word, I can tell you this morning, you are not ready. Get ready. Prepare your minds for actions by being, he says next, sober Minded. Sober minded. Literally, don't be drunk. Okay? But I think spiritually, what Peter is emphasizing here is this don't be intoxicated or controlled by wrong thinking or emotions. You could put it this way also be free from intoxicating and dominating influences. Be clear thinking, be level headed, be self controlled. Have your mind and emotions controlled by the sobriety of wisdom and by the clear-headedness that only God's clear word can bring. That's what sober-mindedness means. Whenever you come across it in Scripture, it means having your naturally muddled mind and your naturally out-of-control emotions cleaned out and controlled by the sobriety of God's word. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what being sober-minded means. It's not let thoughts or emotions run all over the place. It's to bring them in line with what God has said and what God has promised. It's to secure your hope. Be scripture controlled. Be clear thinking. Be sober minded. Be ready. Be ready to make a clean and sudden break from this world to enter into eternal blessings promised to you and be ready to face your Savior and your Lord at any moment. Be ready. I haven't even gotten to the application yet. But I just have to ask the question, are you ready? I don't want to ask you the question of, are you ready to show up at church on Sunday and put on a good face and make it look like you're a Christian? Or to show up at church and, you know, I can, I can, I can make it pretend like everything's good between me and my wife. I can, make it, I can, make, I can pretend that it looks really good between me and God. No. Are you ready to meet God himself? Are you ready? This is the first way you respond to God rightly for your new birth. In light of your new birth, you make yourself ready. You get yourself ready for the grace that is going to be yours, the grace that is coming. So, question. Okay, here's the application. Are you living like that? Are you living like that? Are you setting your hope on that? Are you living your life now and making your decisions now in light of these realities that I've been speaking to you of this morning? First, have you set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Is your hope set on that? If Christ was to return this very second, would that be the joyful expectation of your heart? Or would that be a distressing intrusion on all of your life's plans? Your ambitions, your simple, sinful permissions. See, the Christian maturity is this: going from once thinking, "If Jesus returned, I'd be scared to death," to growing in grace until finally you can think, "You know, if Jesus is returned right now, I'm so ready. I'm so ready. Is the truth Jesus is coming again a delight to your soul this morning or a dread to your soul? Where's your hope at? Are you ready? Second, are you getting your mind, your emotions, and your affections in order so that when Jesus Christ comes you can make a clean departure and arrival into the presence of your Lord knowing that you have ordered your life rightly in light of what he has said? This is a call to examine ourselves. Is there a sin that you're refusing to confess and turn from. Because you're worried what people will think. I urge you, if there is a sin that you have not confessed and you need a Christian to come alongside you and help disciple you, I hope you know I'm one of those. Trust me, I'll never hear anything worse out of your lips that wasn't already spoken of you when Jesus Christ died on the cross. I get it. So, if you need help, that's what I'm here for you. That's what the elders are here for you. And I know that's the spirit of so many in our congregation. We're here to get each other ready. Is there a sin you're refusing to confess and turn from? Another one. Is, is there a fellow believer that you're refusing to forgive? Is there a root of bitterness that you still haven't removed in your heart? Are you, are you prepared? Are you ready? Are you bringing your mind, emotions, and affections into captivity of Jesus Christ? And by the way, if you're thinking, I can't change the way I feel about things, that's not true. It's <laughs> not true. You can speak truth to yourself. Do what David did in Psalms 30, 43 verse 5. He says, why are you cast down O my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? In other words, these emotions aren't right. So what did, what did David do? He tells himself, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He was getting himself ready, getting rid of unnecessary emotions and thoughts. Speak truth to yourself. Be sober-minded. Look towards God's coming grace towards you and get yourself ready. Prepared in life, sober in mind, settled in hope. That's how you're ready. And this call, by the way, is to be ready is not just an abstract lesson for Peter. It was an intensely personal one that Peter himself learned from Jesus. In Luke 12, where Jesus told him, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that when they open the door, they may at once come to him When he knocks, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So I just, my application is very simple. Be ready. Confess that sin. Forgive that person. Let go of that bitterness. Reign in your godless pursuits, amusements, and interests. Christ in all his glory and grace is standing ready at the door. Submit to him and be ready. In light of your salvation, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is the first way that we respond to God for our salvation. We make ourselves ready. If I can help you do that this morning, come talk to me. We'll have to look at the other two responses to God next time. But for now, this is the word of God from 1 Peter one thirteen, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until the grace that is to be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ is revealed. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You for its simple clarity. Father, I think of that parable where the servants who forgot Your coming gave themselves to worldly pursuits and interests and emotions. And when the master returned, there was weeping and sorrow and shame. Father, help us to keep each other ready. Father, help us not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. Help us not to forsake the discipling of ourselves and the Christian encouragement together but help us to consider how to stir one another up into love and good works. Help us to encourage each other daily and all the more as we see this day drawing near. Give us grace, Father, this week to confess that sin, to ask for that help, to let go of that bitterness, to forgive that person, to abandon those superfluous pursuits. And to get ourselves on focus for the coming of Jesus Christ. That we might live a life of worship in this world as exiles. Type of life that we ought to live for your honor and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.